Advancing innovative research, academic excellence, and family-centered care to transform outcomes for children around the world. Children's Mercy Kansas City presents the audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host Dr. Michael Smith. So our topic today is crossing over how a new procedure heals keratoconus. A new FDA approval procedure may replace painful coronary transplants. My guest is Dr. Erin Stahl. She's a pediatric ophthalmologist at Children's Mercy Kansas City and an assistant professor of pediatric ophthalmology at the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Medicine. Dr. Stahl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So why don't we do this? Let's start off. Could you just explain uh, the condition and how it affects the children um, who have it first? Mm-hmm. So keratoconus is actually a relatively common condition, which occurs in about 1 in 2,000 people. It typically shows up in early adolescence through mid-30s. Um, what happens when you have keratoconus is your cornea, which is the clear window on the front of your eye, loses its strength. And so it starts to vault forward and become steeper. Um, It's supposed to be nice and smooth and round. And so as it steepens up, it affects your vision pretty significantly. So have we, I I know that for the most part, we don't really know, um, you know, what causes it, but have, are there any new theories out there of of, of what the cause of this is? Um, Probably the most common thing that leads to keratoconus is eye rubbing. So kids with significant history of allergies who spend a lot of time rubbing their eye are the most likely group to get keratoconus. Um, Kids with Down syndrome also are more likely to develop keratoconus. And then there's a lot of people who don't have a significant history of rubbing or Down syndrome or other condition who also can develop keratoconus. Right. So, so largely, other than the rubbing, it largely means kind of, kind of uh, unknown, uh, yeah. the cause. Um, are, are, when you look at the history of this and you look back at patients who have been diagnosed with this, I mean, um, is, the, is there some sort of predisposition, like the eye rubbing is causing some irritation? Maybe they're more prone to inflammation in the eye. Is there any link like that? I think that what the eye rubbing does is it starts to break down the connections within the cornea. The cornea is made of collagen labor. Uh, collagen fibers, which are like pages of a book. And so they're connected together. And I think uh, what the thinking is, is that a rubbing starts to break down the connections between those corneal layers. And so for most children, what's the, the common treatment? So the common treatment up until this year was that um, you put the child in glasses. You Typically, they'll have astigmatism and nearsightedness because of the condition. So you start with glasses, and when you no longer have good corrected vision with glasses, you move to contact lenses. And then at some point in time, if you can no longer see well with contact lenses or they'll no longer fit on your eye, then you require a corneal transplant. And that was yeah, up until how- last year when... Uh, the new uh, treatment that we are going to discuss was approved. Yeah, so when you look at the the number of, of children that are diagnosed with this, um, how many end up with the, the transplant surgery? Most of them end up with some vision changes, which means they may not see 20-20 despite glasses and contacts. Um, but it's only a small percentage, around 10 to 20 percent, that end up needing a corneal transplant during their lifetime. So let's talk about, so you you had mentioned this before, uh, you know, until last year. So what happened last year with a new procedure uh, that I think really is helping to, to treat this better? Yeah, it's really been revolutionary, but it's actually not last year. So, and you're right about that, but 
about 15 to 20 years ago in Germany, people started experimenting with different combinations of light and vitamins to strengthen the cornea. And they landed on the combination of riboflavin, which is a vitamin, and a certain type of UV light when combined together actually increased the stiffness of the cornea. So there was a number of years of research and early studies. And then for about the last 15 years, it's been standard of care outside the U.S. to use this procedure called corneal cross-linking. It wasn't until April of 2016 that it was approved by the FDA and finally uh, available inside the United States. So let's talk about the the cross-linking. What, what actually is going on when you combine the riboflavin with the UV light? So as I talked about kind of those pages of the book, like the, the corneal fibers um, not being well held together because of rubbing. So what it does is it increases the cross-links or the, the linkage between those fibers. So it strengthens the cornea and doesn't allow it, uh, the disease to progress. So now you mentioned, so this is, you know, in Europe and some other um, areas, this was going on, using this treatment for 15 plus years. Why did it take so long to to, um, come to the United States? It's a really long, it's a really long discussion. (laughs) Um, But the basis is we needed with the way our FDA works is you need a company to bring the product to the FDA. And it's very difficult to take a vitamin and a light and bring them to the FDA and say we want approval to use these together. So it took um, just a lot of work between um, people with keratoconus and the FDA and some a couple different companies actually to bring it all to fruition. And so, you know, looking back to, to, the, um, to the use of this in, in the past um, in Europe, what, what, what kind of results do we see with this? Um, is, is it really, is it curative? Um, I mean, what, what is your expectation? Well, it wasn't great to, you know, have to lag so far behind, but the great point at at this time is we have 15 to 20 years worth of data in children and adults and all different sorts of conditions, and it's really shown that most people are stable permanently after being cross-linked. There's been a number of different protocols used and a number of different concentrations of the drug and timing for the light, and so some people who have some of the alternate treatments have needed to be retreated. But um, with the protocol that was approved in the U.S., the data looks really solid long term. Yeah, and so, and so, like when you think about the the pathology here, and you get the the bulging right of the mm-hmm. of the cornea with this cross linking uh, procedure. I mean, do you visibly see that that is decreasing? Um, I mean, obviously the results are pretty good in Europe, but what is it actually doing to the shape of the cornea? So the the thought of the procedure initially was that we were just going to freeze things in place that we weren't going to fix any damage that had already been done, which is why early diagnosis is so important. Um, But actually, as data has has come in over years, there's actually a little bit of flattening of that cone. And so the the disease does get a little bit better, but the most significant thing is, is freezing it in place and not letting it progress. What do you think is so with the with the cross linking that's um, going on here? What is it? The riboflavin? Obviously, it's a combination of the two. But what exactly do you think the riboflavin is doing in here? We know it's a good antioxidant. Is that part of it? What's your thoughts? Well, what I think what's interesting about this is that this is a natural process, and you're just accelerating it. So there's riboflavin in our tears. And then the UV light is around us at all times. And so people with keratoconus only develop until their 40s or 50s, and then they never have any further progression because they've become naturally cross-linked. And so this, oh. is, a, this is a process that's going on naturally. And it's just, it, you know, it's increasing those bonds within the collagen fibers in the cornea. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. So this is, must be exciting for you. Let me ask you though, what what kind of follow up happens? So when a, when a child undergoes this therapy, what what's the follow up for them? So the the surgical procedure takes an hour. There's a 30 minute um, application time for the riboflavin, and then there's a 30 minute application time for the light. And then we put a contact lens on the eye because it's a little bit sore for about two days afterwards. I see them about four days afterwards and take that contact lens off. Um, and then after that, we see them monthly um, for the first couple months to make sure everything looks good and everything's stable. And then eventually they'll they'll be seen, you know, every every three to six months just to make sure they're doing okay. Well, well let's talk about how it's actually applied then. Um, so, so what 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 exactly? How are you administering the riboflavin, for instance? Um, so the, really, the the main surgical step of the procedure is to remove the epithelium, which is that first layer on the front of their eye. And I always tell people, if you've ever had a scratch on your eye before, that's because the epithelium was removed in that area. So essentially, I'm going to create a large scratch on the eye, and that lets the riboflavin penetrate the cornea. So make the make the scratch, and we just use topical numbing medicine for older kids. Younger kids will be asleep for the procedure. Um, but topical medicines take off the epithelium, and then every two minutes for 30 minutes, you apply a drop of the the FDA-approved riboflavin solution. The riboflavin actually goes first, right? Yeah, and, then, and saturates and the cornea. And then that's the 30-minute procedure, and then follow that with the UV light. Um, and then that, that, that combination is what's increasing the cross-linking, which is what we do naturally, you know, when we're just being outside and getting riboflavin naturally from food and, um, and so, so forth. So it's a very, very interesting, uh, procedure. How many, how many kids, um, at Children's Mercy have you, uh, treated so far? Well, we just got it. So it was finally, um, you know, all, all set up and ready to go in February, and I treated my first two kids that week, and we have a number of kids now that are on the schedule and, and waiting to be treated. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, Dr. Stahl, I want to thank you um, for the work that you're doing at Children's Mercy and, and, and for bringing this procedure over, and I want to thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Transformational Pediatrics with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.